G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. It is wrong not to love God for who He is. Instead, many of us love Him for what we think He will give us. Hello and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We're finishing our message about resetting our approach to life today as Pastor Jeff shares about Job's encounter with God. Does God owe us something for serving Him the right way? Or is He sovereign and worthy of praise despite our circumstances? When we're in the midst of difficult times, we can't see God. We can't see Jesus' work. And He says, even though you don't see Him, you love Him. You love Him. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we continue our message, Reset Your Approach. I remember a movie. Actually, it was a movie and a Broadway play. It's the movie Amadeus. And in the movie Amadeus, we meet a young boy by the name of Salieri. Salieri, who's quite gifted himself, prays this prayer to God. Let me read it for you. He said, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be famous throughout the world. And in return, God, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen. After Salieri prays that prayer, he serves God. He keeps his end of the bargain. He keeps his hands off women. He works very hard at his music. He becomes quite the philanthropist. He helps the poor. He gives free music lessons to people who can't afford it. He goes to church and worship all the time. And for a while, it looks like God is holding up his end of the bargain. His career is on the up and up. He does indeed become a great composer. All is going well until one day, a man by the name of Mozart shows up. When Mozart comes to Vienna, everything changes for Salieri. Mozart's massive genius shows how mediocre Salieri's talent really is. Mozart's success actually begins to eclipse that of Salieri's. And Salieri, of course, can't understand it. Why? But according to the play, and even the movie, Mozart is the very opposite of Salieri. Mozart is vulgar, debaucherous, irreligious in every way, and yet the good things keep coming down upon him. Fame, fortune, and the women. My goodness, the women. And on one occasion, Salieri sees Mozart cheat on his fiancée, and he says it was incomprehensible. Here I am denying all of my natural lust every day to deserve God's gift. Notice that, to deserve God's gift. And here's Mozart indulging in all directions without a rebuke from God, nothing but success. Salieri begins to burn with anger over the direction God is allowing both their lives to go. Until finally, in one place in the movie at least, Salieri 
takes the crucifix off the wall and throws it into the fire and says to God, from now on, you and I are enemies. We are enemies, God, you and me. And he becomes so bitter that later on he ends up murdering Mozart. What is amazing here is that Salieri would say, you know, I was a servant of God. I served my fellow man. I served the poor. I served mankind with my gift. And God made me this murderous wretch because of absolute injustice. But what is the real problem? Salieri is exactly what Satan said Job was. He's not serving the poor. He's not serving God. He's serving himself. These were merely useful commodities to get the glory for which he truly hungered. And as soon as God stopped running history the way Salieri believed that God should run history, he turned so quickly and he became far more capable of evil than the vulgar, irreligious Mozart. What is the lesson learned? Job shouts and complains and seeks understanding, but Job never takes the crucifix and throws it into the fire. Oh man, this is huge. I've often wondered about this. I have a close relative whose life did not turn out the way they believed it should be going. And I got to tell you, I was amazed when this person walked away from God and did the unthinkable, the unimaginable. It is something that has bothered me for a very long time. How could you know Jesus so deeply and intimately and one day because things don't go your way, you walk away and do something that is dastardly? And then I remember 1 Peter 1, where Peter assumed that people's lives were not going well because of the Roman persecution. And he writes a letter to them, and he says in verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, in all this, all this suffering, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says that these things happen so that the real you may be exposed, who you really are. And he says in verse 8, though you've not seen him. Now, I realize this is probably speaking about the physical Christ, but there's also a sense in which when we're in the midst of difficult times, we can't see God. We can't see Jesus' work. And he says, even though you don't see him, you love him. You love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. Even though things are falling apart, you love God. And because you know God loves you, that keeps you going. The real question of life, are you a Salieri? In your mind, God owes you. You've given up a lot for him. Really? You've given up things that were better and you settled for God? You really wanted these other things, but you gave them up for God? What is it that makes you a person that cannot handle suffering and injustice because it will turn you into a bitter, despondent, depressed, maybe even evil person capable of doing things even the worst of those who are not Christ followers? And the answer is very simple, folks. It's because you've never understood the gospel, that everything is by grace, unmerited favor, that God owes you nothing. And you owe him everything. 
And if you truly understand the gospel, your countenance will waver during difficult times. It's natural. It's part of the human experience. But your faith in an omniscient God and your love for him will never depart. You will never take the crucifix and throw it into the fire. You know you're a Salieri when your love for God is contingent upon things going your way, upon God running the universe the way you think it ought to be run. You are in as long as God pays up. You are in as long as your commitment pays off. And if you think about it, had God shown up and said to Job, hey, Job, the reason you're suffering is that your name may live forever, that millions of people will be encouraged and inspired by your patience, your love, your dedication, that someday in Los Angeles, California, in this church called One and All, they're going to tell your story. In fact, they're going to tell your story all over the world. Then Job, after hearing that, would have gone back to a quid pro quo relationship with God. He would have said, oh, well, if I'm going to win in all these situations, then I'm in. But he would have been in it for himself, his name, his fame. And then you and I would have never heard about Job. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believed. And the reason they are blessed is because they recognize God loves them and they love him. And there is a peace that comes with that kind of love. I'm sorry, Jeff. Some of you will say, I just don't understand the story. And I'm saying to you, yes, you do. Everyone wants to be loved for who they are. That is a moral idea. It is wrong not to love God for who he is. Instead, Many of us love him for what we think he will give us. The only way you will ever learn to love God for himself and not his benefits is when your life doesn't go the way you think it ought to be going and you don't know why and yet you don't pick up the crucifix and throw it into the fire. Instead, you pray that the fire will refine you. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We're in our Reset series about changing our approach to life, and Pastor Jeff is wrapping up a message about Job, which shows us we should love God for who He is, not what He can give us. Let's continue. Let's finish this now. This is important, so don't tune out. If you go back to chapter 38, verse 1, the Bible says, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Again, this word for whirlwind is, you know, I think of a, I don't like whirlwind because I think of one of those little dust winds that creep up and then disappear. The actual word refers to hurricane first force winds. In fact, in Job 9, Job prophesied in a way by saying in verse 17 that if God did show up in a storm, it would crush him. And now here we are in chapter 38. The average hurricane has as much power as a 10 megaton nuclear warhead going off every few minutes. Imagine that. And that's how God shows up. And yet in the midst of the storm, this is the first time in the book of Job that God is referred to not as Elohim, the more generic term for God, but as Yahweh. Again, Job 38.1, then the Lord answered Job, Lord Yahweh, 
Again, Elohim, generic divinity, but Yahweh is the term for the God of relationship. The name that God gave to Moses out of the burning bush. The name that God gave Leah after Leah recognized that she will never be ultimately fulfilled by husband and children, that God is the only one big enough to fill the void in her heart. And then she started to refer to God at that point as Yahweh, the God of relationship. And we're told, then the Lord answered Job. That's another crucial word because God spoke to Satan. That's a word that means one-way communication from a superior to an inferior. But God answered Job, and that's the word for dialogue between friends. There is a deliberate juxtaposition here, and it should startle the reader. On the one hand, God is saying, I am majestic, powerful, holy, and just, so much so that all this could crush you. On the other hand, a voice comes out of the hurricane that is gentle, soft, loving, counseling, so that God demonstrates his destructive power before Job, and yet Job is not destroyed. And look at what God says. Must I be condemned that you be justified? Job 48. Please stay with me. Job, must I be condemned that you may be justified? May I come to you and say, you're right, Job. I wasn't fair. You didn't do anything to deserve this. I'll admit my unfairness and you will be vindicated. Now, I'll go back again. The question, must I be condemned, says God, that you may be justified, Job? On a micro level, the answer is no. Because God says, just trust me, admit your limitations. There's no need for you to condemn me. Admit that there's a higher story taking place and you don't know what it is. And even though it seems like your life is falling apart, I'm actually putting it back together. Admit that you are limited in your knowledge and understanding. You don't need to condemn me to vindicate yourself. But on a macro level, the answer is yes. God will have to be condemned if I am to be justified. You hear me? Though a soft voice emerges from the storm, it's still a storm, and its destruction must be satisfied. L listen, I want you to follow me here. Job meets God in a hurricane force wind. Jacob meets God in an angelic wrestler. Nicodemus meets God as the incarnate Christ. You're supposed to meet God at the foot of the cross. Imagine the conversation you would have if you were the only person in existence and Jesus is dying on the cross and you're there and you look up, imagine how the conversation would go. Who are you and why are you on the cross? My name is Jesus and I'm on this cross to die for your sins. I'm not a sinner. I'm not that bad. Oh, you've never told a lie? You've never wounded someone created in the image of God. You've never had racist attitudes. You've never had things in you, thoughts in you that were unholy. Well, yes, I have. Well, that's why I'm here. I'm here to die for your sins. Well, why not just forgive them? Why do you have to go through this gruesome death? It's not that simple. Jesus would say that God is holy and perfect and pure and must separate himself from our sin, your sin. Well, then can he just say, okay, you're forgiven and live apart? No, but God wants to live with you in ultimate community. That's the reason you were born, so that you and God would live in community together forever and ever. Well, then can he just invite me on up? No, he can't. Your sin must be paid for. The wages of sin is death. 
But God doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live in eternity with him and that everlasting life he wants to begin now. Is that why you're on the cross? Yes, I'm dying for your sins, past, present, future, so that God will look at you as righteous now and you can come into his presence and live with him through eternity. Do you see how even the book of Job is a reference to the gospel? Because God has to be condemned if you and I are to be justified. He has to die the death we deserve in order that our sins be forgiven. On the cross, the storm of God's justice comes down on Jesus so that you and I can escape the storm and instead, out of the justice of God, hear the loving, gentle voice that says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does Job do at the end? This is beautiful. Almost finished. Stay with me now. Job finishes by saying, for I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand upon the earth. I got it now, God. I may not understand everything, but he will stand on the earth in the end and he will make it plain and I will be vindicated and I will be justified. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job is saying, I have an abstract view of God. I realize that now, but now I know who he truly is. I can see who he truly is. I know he's all powerful, but now I can also see he's all knowing. His wisdom and knowledge are too wonderful for me to comprehend. And Job gets it to the degree that he actually repents. He says, I take back what I said. I take back my demand for an explanation. I met God, Job says, in the tornado, and out of the tornado came a voice of love. And that's why you've heard me say numerous times on the basis of what I do know about God, that he loves me so much that he gave his own son. Then I will interpret the events of my life in the future on the basis of what I know about him in the past. Charles Tooley is an American sociology king. He developed a concept called the looking glass self. And he says that a person's self-concept is determined by what he thinks the most important person in his life thinks about him. Now you got that? Let me repeat that. Charles Tooley, the sociologist, says a person's self-concept or self-esteem is determined by what he thinks the most important person in his life thinks about him. So whatever the most important person in your life thinks about you will, to a large degree, determine what you think about yourself. This is what Job learns, because if Jesus has preeminence in your life, your self-esteem will be off the charts, because nobody loves you like him. That's what Job discovered and it made everything else okay. The hurricane came, and it loved me. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Let me close. One final story. My friend Ravi Zacharias told me this many years ago, and I'm sure many of you have heard it, some perhaps not. But when Ravi Zacharias was preaching in Vietnam during the war, there was a young translator by the name of Han Pham. And Han Pham was a remarkable young man, Christian man, had given his life to Christ and went into hostile territory to interpret for these American preachers. But when all the American preachers left, the authorities in Vietnam arrested him, Han Pham. And they tried to brainwash him. 
With incredible torture, they read to him, forced read to him from marks and angles and all this propaganda, trying to get him to disavow his relationship with God. They tortured him. They, he, they brainwashed him constantly, reminding him that if God was so good, why are you in this prison? If God is so good and loving, why did all your American pastor friends leave you and abandon you? And night after night and day after day, when he would be just at the point of death through starvation, they would slide a plate of food. He would go over to the food and it would be human feces. Torture. Atrocity. Until finally one day, Han Pham said, that's it. Maybe they're right. Maybe there is no God. Tomorrow when I wake up is going to be the first morning that I don't pray. And he vowed to wake up the next morning without acknowledging God. This is all written and recorded in his book of his life. The next day, he was informed that he was assigned to latrine duty. So now he's got to, uh, to clean the commanders, the officers of the camp who were torturing him. He's got to clean their latrines. And as he's cleaning the first day, he glances over into the trash can and he sees English writ. And wanting to get his hand on anything English, he looked a little closer and he said, I know this is a horrible thing, but you don't realize how desperate I was. I took that piece of paper that had English writing and human feces on it, and I cleaned it so that I could read it. And when I cleaned it and washed it off, I realized it was a page from the Bible. The commander was using scripture, the Bible pages, to cleanse himself. And I glanced down, and wouldn't you know that the page that had been ripped out was Romans 8. That says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That nothing will separate us from the love of God. That I work everything out for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. And Ham Fenn says at that point in his book, he just collapsed onto the ground, started weeping and said, God, you would not even let me go for 24 hours. He starts building a boat with 50 others. They're going to escape. Placing his hope and faith and trust in God. A few weeks go by and two men that he supposed were from the Viet Cong came and said, hey, we hear you're trying to escape. Are you trying to escape? Ham Finn said, no, no, I'm not. And immediately when they left, he said, here I go again, God, trying to run my own life when you've showed me that you're in charge. If those guys come back and ask me, I'm going to tell them the truth. They did come back one hour within their departure of escape. Ham Pham, are you trying to escape? Ham Pham looked at them and said, yes, I am trying to escape. Are you going to put me back in prison? And they said, no, we want to come with you. These two men ended up helping them sail to wretched, treacherous seas. And because they were experienced sailors, they were the two men that ended up saving the lives of the group. If it were not for them, Ham Pham writes, all would have been lost. What's the point? Get out of God's chair. Do what's right and let God determine the outcome. Do not presume to know what God is up to. And do not presume to have knowledge and wisdom that suggests that you and I have the right to run this universe. We don't have all the information. We are not God. And so the great poet writes, our face shows grief, but not despair. Our head, though bowed, has faith to spare. And even now we could suppose 
Our thorns will somehow yield the rose. Our life with him is full of signs that God writes straight with crooked lines. Dark clouds can hide the rising sun and all seem lost when all is one. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your name, for the vindication that comes through Christ, for the justification that comes through the cross, for the wisdom that comes through the power and knowledge of God that gives us the ability to endure, knowing that when all seems lost, all is one. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. And that's the end of our message about Job and resetting our approach to life. Next time, we'll hear a new message in this series. So please join us then. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.